is an author, musician, and professor at Fordham University, where he teaches communications and media studies. His fiction and nonfiction work has been translated into 16 languages and includes the sci-fi novels, The Silk Code, and The Plot to Save Socrates. Before his academic career, he spent much of the late 1960s and early 70s as a singer-songwriter, writing over 100 songs. He returned to music in 2020 with the release of his album, Welcome Up, Songs of Space and Time. Paul Levinson, welcome to The Creative Process. Good to be here. And you're no stranger to The Creative Process. I mean, you're a musician, you're a writer. You also, as I understand, uh, you're an educator, but you've also been quite creative and maybe education and teaching is kind of a creative process for you as well. But I'd like to begin with your um, strictly creative work. You have just come out with an album after a little pause, we should say. And I think it's so beautiful. I was listening to it just before we got into this interview. So let's introduce me to this uh, song you're sharing with us. Well, first of all, yes, uh, my first album uh, was released in 1972. It's called Twice Upon a Rhyme, and it was appreciated at that time by almost no one. Uh, at that time, my, my girlfriend, who then became my wife, Tina, she liked it. And then uh, after we got married a couple of years later, our two kids liked it. And for many years, those were the only people in the universe that heard much of anything from that album. But beginning in the 21st century, a Japanese magazine reviewed that album, Twice Upon a Run. They called it a lost cult classic. I think the only thing that was accurate in that description is that the album had been lost. It certainly wasn't a classic, and I'm not sure if it was ever part of any cult. But what that review did is it sort of kindled a new interest in Twice Upon a Run. And again, that was at the beginning of uh, the 21st century. About two years ago, I got an email out of a clear blue sky from someone who had a small record company uh, in Buffalo, New York. And he said, hey, I have been a fan of your music. I'm also a fan of your science fiction. Would you, by any chance, have any songs that combine some of the feeling that you put into your science fiction, some of the imagery, the ideas with your music. So the truth of the matter is I had already about three or four songs. I would have said to him, yes, even if I had no songs. But I told him yes, and he said, okay, well, we need about eight songs for the album. One of the songs uh, that I was thinking of, and this gets back to my then-girlfriend, Tina, in 1968, I wrote a verse or two of a song and a melody. It had no title. Hiding behind a raindrop, shyly opening the sweet chocolate eyes. So, you know, I just basically wrote that. And uh, I I said to Tina, this really is about you. You know, you inspired me to write this. And she was very happy that I uh, was writing a song about her. But, you know, the way 
at least my creative process works is sometimes I come up with an idea and I finish it right away. It could be a novel, it could be a short story, it could be an article, it could be a song. Other times I come up with an idea and I write a little of it and then for whatever reason I put it away, sometimes for a short period of time. In this case, for a very long period of time, because after I got that phone call from the uh, guy who lived in Buffalo, New York, his name is Chris Hoisington, his company is Old Bear Records, I said to Tina, well, it looks like I'm going to be recording a new album, but I have to get some more science fiction songs. And Tina said, why don't you finish the song you started writing for me back in 1968? I knew she'd been very patient. It was almost 50 years, <laughs> and we were grandparents already. But I sat down at the piano uh, that afternoon, and I finished the song. And that's how Welcome Up was written. Uh, it started in 1968. I didn't even look at it for well over 45 years. And then uh, I, I sat down in the fall of 2018 and, and finished the song. And when uh, we went up to Batavia, New York, which is a small town uh, in the outskirts of Buffalo and recorded the album, it was clear to me and everybody else, the producers, the engineer, the musician, that Welcome Up was the best you know, song to uh, make the title of the album. So that's how that song came to be. Well, without further ado, let's just hear just a bit of it. Hiding behind a raindrop Shyly opening her sweet milk chocolate eyes Sleepily peeking out from dreams nine times her size Welcome up Stories Same drive 
I mean, it's so beautiful and it has such, you know, the first time I heard that and now it has such a, a feeling of 1968 too, because I had wondered, oh, was this an older track? I thought, that's a lady. So I think that's great because if you wrote it, it's great that it had its inception then. And so it has that feel and then you've just picked it up. It's interesting that you say that because I often say to people and they think I'm kidding, but it, it really is true. I feel mentally and psychologically and in my soul like I'm 17 years old most of the time anyway. And if I have a bad day, like I'm not feeling that well, maybe I feel like I'm 19 or I'm 20, but, but I certainly don't feel my age. And so th that part of me that came back to the song in 2018 and, and finished it, uh, was really the same part of me that started writing the song. It seemed very, very natural to me. I sat down by the piano, you know, just played out the chords and everything just fit right into place. And um, that's true of everything that I do. I think on the level of ideas, uh, you know, the words that I put together, the words that I use in my lyrics, the words that come out in my writing, Obviously, I absorb things from the world around me, but the inspiration still comes from me at that age. There used to be a saying about science fiction, when is the golden age of science fiction? And the answer, a joke was, well, when you're about 12 years old, because that's when you usually start reading and loving science fiction. And for me, the golden age of my creativity was in my late teens. And everything that I've done since then, although the specifics, you know, might be informed by something else. For example, you know, in terms of the state of our world, I, I might write something about the pandemic. I might write something now about Donald Trump. Th those facts exist right now in 2020. But the inspiration to write about it and to put all of those words together, that still comes back to what I was like when I was 17, 18 years old. Well, it's really beautiful. I'm just wondering, um, does that psychic you know, closeness to your young self, just having that youthful spirit must help enormously communicating with your students? Yeah, that's true. And, you know, it's interesting. People have often asked me, uh, they, let's say, knew about my science fiction. And they would say, well, how is it that you've even come to write books that are much more serious? How is it, as you've just suggested, that I'm a professor at Fordham University, I teach courses such as freedom of expression, ethics of technology, and so on. Those are very serious, weighty courses. And the answer is, for me, there has never been that much difference between my science fiction on the one hand, my serious writing on the other hand, and my music on yet a third hand. And as a matter of fact, critics of my nonfiction have often said, your ideas about technology, and I tend to be a great optimist about technology, the very fact that we're doing this right now through Zoom this is something which I think is wonderful 
Zoom enables people. You're in Paris, I'm in New York, and we can just easily talk to each other without getting on a plane. So I've always been a great champion of technology, and my critics have said Levinson's work reads like science fiction. And then my critics of science fiction, because in my science fiction, like in my novel, The Plot to Save Socrates, it's a time travel story, but there's a lot of philosophy in that story. Socrates' ideas, Plato's ideas, they play major roles in that novel. So uh, my science fiction is uh, more serious than science fiction might usually be. And my nonfiction, including my teaching, is more optimistic uh, and more energetically optimistic than you usually might find in an academic. And my music fits right in there in both worlds. And do you use um, music as part of your teaching? It must help you connect with the students as well. Yeah, it does. You know, I sometimes think to the class, if I'm talking about something and there's a song that's relevant, I might actually sing a few bars of that song to the class. I mean, this gets into Marshall McLuhan's work. One of the points that McLuhan constantly made is that the acoustic, the right brain, the musical part of our existence is a very, very profound mode in many ways more profound and more primary than the visual. So it's one thing to put an image up on the screen. You know, that can be very effective. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. I think that's true to some extent, but the sound of the human voice, the music of our existence, those elements might be worth more than even a thousand pictures because in that one little, piece of music you can express a universe of ideas. Certainly with feeling and when we think back that we really, I mean we don't know what it was like exactly or can't remember what it was like exactly in the womb, but that, that sound was primary. Maybe some sense of touch, but then you know smell was gone, you know, our visual capacity, but the sound, you know and the sound just even of our mother's heartbeat and all those things. So I think it's, I wish it was something that I knew more about, but I think that the way sound can cut through so much. And um, I've been fortunate to have some, to do some interviews with composers and musicians. And so I've got to learn a little bit more, but uh, I'm still like primitive in my understanding of uh, music, although I dance, but, um, so you're so we've heard your music. Uh, you've spoken a bit about your writing. Um, would you like to just re read from one of your works for us, so we just get a flavor of your the different sides of you? Yeah, I'm going to read uh, about from the plot to save Socrates. Let me just say one other thing about sound, though. If you think about it, we close our eyes every night when we go to sleep. It's easy for us to close our eyes during the day. In fact, we blink numerous times because we have eyelids but we don't have earlids our ears are always connected to the world and that's why your point uh, about the the little baby inside the mother hears the mother's heartbeat hears the mother's voice the father's voice that's very profound and important that that shows the acoustic connection that we have to the world so this uh, is my novel, The Plot to Save Socrates. 
I wrote it around 2005. It was published in 2006. Ever since I was a little kid, even back in like my high school classes when we talked about Socrates, um, I never believed the story that Plato tells us in the Crito, which is that Socrates, after having been found guilty of uh, undermining uh, the youth of Athens with his dangerous ideas, um, he, he sentenced to death, uh, sentenced to drink hemlock. And according to Plato, an old friend of Socrates, Crito, shows up at the last minute and says to Socrates, hey, you know, I have a ship waiting for you in the Piraeus, in, in the harbor. Let's get out of here. We have your wife and kids on the ship. And Socrates nobly says, according to Plato, no. I may disagree with the Athenian state, but I would never go against its judgment. Now, as a little kid, and again, I was 15 or 16, I never believed that because I know that, I mean, I feel the same way now. If I was ever convicted of something, uh, you know, spreading dangerous ideas and I was sentenced to death and someone showed up at the last minute and said, hey, we can escape, I would jump on that ship in a heartbeat, I, in a New York minute, I wouldn't even think twice about it. So therefore, I didn't believe what really uh, what, Soc what Plato said uh, happened uh, to Socrates. And so because of that, that was sort of the inspiration for writing this novel. And I'll read from the very beginning of the novel, chapter one. Athens, AD, 2042. She ripped the paper in half then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had once read that years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Sierra had always done everything for the thrill. She had no sense of connection except to her work, which should have made her an ideal person for this job. Still, an ideal person would have followed the plan. It was written on the only substance that could survive decades, maybe longer, without batteries, which required only the light of the sun to be read or the moon on a good night or a flickering flame when there was no moon. Paper, a marvelous invention, thin and durable, and Sierra had just torn it into pieces, opened her palm, and given it to the wind to disperse in irretrievable directions. What a dramatic beginning. Yeah, it's it's curious, and I and I agree with you. I I don't quite believe that story, but you know how people from history are mythologized, so we want to believe them capable of more uh, sacrificing acts. On that's right. But it is so interesting, you know, what historical figures and I mean, what acts of imagining and what acts of research and what liberties do you take? You know, how do you, how do you um, draw that line? Oh, those are great questions. First of all, part of the plot to save Socrates is a new platonic dialogue that's discovered. And 
it's new because I wrote it. I wrote it in English. But in terms of research, before I wrote that, I already, as a, again, as a kid, had read some of Benjamin Jowett's translations into English of the Platonic dialogues, which are all about Socrates and his ideas. But before I sat down to write the plot to save Socrates, I went back to those Benjamin Jowett translations and I immersed myself in the meter and the feel and the pace of his Victorian translations of those original uh, Greek dialogues. And, and that was really essential in terms of my writing, what I hope is a convincing dialogue so that it feels like it's something that would have been uh, written by Plato about Socrates. But there's a lot more about uh, what happened to Socrates. And I'm not the first person to wonder why Socrates really took the hemlock, what his motive was. And there's a great book by I.F. Stone called The Trial of Socrates. And I read that book from cover to cover more than once. He actually was a Greek scholar in addition to being a political theorist. And he actually read all the dialogues in the original Greek. And then I just did extensive research. And, and I'll tell you a, a secret uh, that some writers know and some writers don't know. A great way of doing historical research, a great source of historical research, is getting an old copy of the Encyclopedia Britannica. So say if you get a copy that was published in 1950, Obviously, it's not going to have anything that happened after 1950. There's not going to be any mention of JFK or, you know, anyone after 1950. But there are great uh, articles in that old encyclopedia about ancient Greece, about Socrates, and those articles had been taken out of later editions because they didn't want to make the encyclopedia so big. So one of the things I did, I was very fortunate about 10 years before I even wrote the plot to save Socrates, I bought a, a complete set of the Encyclopedia Britannica from the early 1950s. And that was a, an invaluable source of research. Finally, as a professor at Fordham University, I have access to their library. And they have a big, beautiful library. And in that library, the university was founded in the early 1850s. And the, the library was created then. And they still have a few books in that library uh, from that time. And, you know, you have to go in. It's like a very temperature-controlled room. And so I did a lot of research in that as well. And, uh, you know, research is very important. It's an interesting thing, you know, with science fiction. So... Part of it is not true, right? I mean, part of it is you're making up a story. But in order for your readers to have confidence in your narrative, you have to make sure you are as accurate as possible about the facts that surround the fiction that you are creating. That's so interesting. I didn't realize that. I mean, I I'm old enough to remember because I was um, raised, you know, partially by my grandparents and we had old um, encyclopedias and you know young people now don't realize I mean it was it could stretch the length of a room like <laughs> if you lined up encyclopedias although we have Wikipedia which I think is interesting there is something about um, you know ha having a set of encyclopedias and I guess it feels 
I think there's a sense of discovery with technology, but there's also this thing where we're being guided through the, by the algorithms and it feels a little bit less of a sense of um, following the yeah, chance like that. That's a very important point. There's no doubt on the one hand that Wikipedia makes it so easy for everyone, students, faculty, writers, to find information in a way that was never that easy before. And that's great. And you know, there was actually an experiment done around 2004 uh, run by Nature magazine, which measured the number of errors in the Encyclopedia Britannica and in Wikipedia. And they found out that the number of errors, the percentage of errors per article was pretty much the same. So Wikipedia is very accurate. But you're also quite right that even the Encyclopedia Britannica, as it continued, began cutting out older articles, not because they were not true, but because they just didn't seem quite as relevant and they didn't want to expand to an infinite uh, amount of pages. So yes, I think something has been lost, ironically, uh, with Wikipedia. There is no limit on how big Wikipedia can be, so they can keep older and older articles. But the problem is they're constantly updating the articles. But on the other hand, one good thing about Wikipedia, a lot of people don't realize this, you at any time can click on the history of an article and go back to the earlier versions of the article. And so that gives you a wealth of information which is akin to a 1952 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. No, it's, it is very interesting. And I do like to stay a little bit, I mean, one of the initiatives of what we want to do with the credit process is also to celebrate libraries. And, you know, again, a lot of this young, this generation have grown up accessing libraries just online, the experience of going to a library, as you say, the research process. It is interesting, you know, the physical process or visiting a place or just of having to leave your home. So it means it's important to you. So I think that there is this um, the sense of community or a librarian as well who has, you know, you know, vast and varied knowledge about so many disciplines. And that, that's a nice thing as well, where you can, you can ask somebody. So I do, we do like to celebrate libraries and their importance and um, for those who, who don't have as much direct contact with that. And it's great that you could, you know, have, you know, have access to some of those old books. Uh, it's really, um, we have some participation from Athens and uh, it's, uh, and I, I'm, I'm fascinated with the ancient world, so I like to, um, it's, it's so interesting to go back in time. But as a science fiction, I, I don't know, do you define yourself as a science fiction writer? I mean, you're, you're also a writer of nonfiction books. Yeah, how do you define yourself, I guess, when you have so many hyphens? I define myself as a writer. And if you think about that, that encompasses being a songwriter, it encompasses being a writer of science fiction, and it encompasses being a writer of nonfiction. I've, I've written books like, uh, well, my doctoral dissertation, Human Replay, A Theory of the Evolution of Media, which argues that as media evolve, they don't get more artificial, they get more natural. Once upon a time, all we had is black and white photography, now we have color. 
Color is part of the natural world. Once upon a time, we had silent movies. Now we have movies that have sight and sound. Obviously, we hear as well as see. Uh, we even have holography now, so which is the, the third dimension. Uh, it, so uh, th that was my thesis back then in 1976, and I've written books about Marshall McLuhan and uh, more recently books about fake news, which have a, a lot of political content. And uh, all of those, to me, are part of the same process uh, that is the process of being a writer. And so it, it, it really is the case that I have an idea and the idea is first, and then I have to decide, am I going to write a science fiction story about this, or am I going to write a more serious scholarly article, or am I even maybe going to write a song about that? And I'm just fortunate that I'm able to do those things. And, but for example, there are other people I know who might have a visual talent. They could be painters. So they might be painters and writers at the same time. And for them, they come up with an idea and they have to decide, do I want to write it on the canvas through my paint or do I want to write it in, in words? So by writer or author or creator, maybe that's even a better word, that, that word creator pertains to all of those processes. And that's honestly how I, uh, how I think of myself. And, but it is unfortunate, I will say this, if you take, for example, the New York Times, the, the, and the New York Times Sunday book review section. They, for decades and decades, reviewed science fiction. How did they review science fiction? They had like a little column called Science Fiction, and a very talented uh, guy by the name of Gerald Jonas reviewed three or four books in that small column. I was very happy that some of my books were reviewed in that column. But my point is you never saw a science fiction novel on the front page and you never saw a science fiction novel reviewed the way other novels were reviewed unless it was, you know, some kind of breakout novel like, I don't know, probably 1984, the George Orwell novel was, was reviewed in a more normal way in the New York Times. Uh, so there's been a lot of prejudice against science fiction because, again, it's somehow thought to be not serious. I think that's a big mistake. Uh, it, it, it's very, very serious, or can be very serious. And particularly now, I mean, it's a great place, a great space in which to critique lots of things like authoritarian regimes. You can have all these metaphors, you know, slavery. I mean, because you can have all these extremities on another planet and somehow it can become more acceptable or you can you can critique it because it's a world that you've invented and so you don't have that obligation to be yeah, absolutely and apropos of like george orwell's 1984 it was written in 1948 and he was talking about the communist soviet union and about nazi germany and obviously both of those are gone now but that book is still relevant because we have somebody in the white house donald trump who yeah, it is maybe not as bad as Hitler in terms of the number of people that he rounded up and killed, but he has all of those same uh, fascist instincts. In fact, you know, the Institute for Propaganda Analysis in the 1940s identified some of the bedrocks of propaganda that totalitarian regimes used. And, you know, things like appeal to authority, 
just believe what I say because I'm an authority. You don't have to think, just listen to what I'm saying. False association. Uh, you know, this, uh, you can inject a disinfectant and that's going to, you know, cure you or protect you from COVID. All of these things were exactly what people who were studying uh, propaganda and fascistic societies in the 1940s were able to identify. And so you can read uh, the novel 1984 right now and learn a lot about what's going on in the world. By the way, another great writer, Isaac Asimov, he, he wrote a series of stories called The Foundation Stories. Uh, they were collected into a trilogy. They're actually now being made into a television series for Apple TV. David Goyer, I think, is, is putting it all together. And um, it, what that series of narratives is all about is, let's say, through statistics, you could measure enough of what human beings are doing, that is, measure human behavior, and you measured human behavior accurately, maybe you could predict the future. And if you think about it, when Asimov wrote that in the 1940s, there were statistics, there were servers, but they were very primitive uh, compared to what they are now. Nowadays, whether it's an upcoming election, whether it's what ha what's happening with COVID-19, whatever, there are a huge number of surveys that are conducted with the idea of predicting, measuring, knowing something of the future. So right there, you have this very, very serious and important technique written about, put into a science fiction format by Isaac Asimov. Hi, I'm Claire Goudreau, a student at Johns Hopkins University and a collaborator with The Creative Process. As a bit of a sci-fi buff myself, I've loved hearing Levinson's perspectives on being a creator. Paul Levinson's career is a deeply interesting and reassuring one, because it shows that creatives don't have to limit themselves to one field or specialty. He's written sci-fi novels, op-eds, non-fiction pieces, songs, and countless other things, but the string tying all of them together is his obvious passion for his work. When you pick your college major or start your first job, it can be easy to feel like you've pigeonholed yourself or that you're supposed to stick to this one track forever, but Levinson shows that this doesn't need to be the case. You can, for example, experiment with music, then write a novel, then become a college professor before circling back once more to music, with countless other pit stops in between. You don't have to limit your creativity. But certainly when a good writer writes in any genre, they, they bring the, the quality of their writing to that genre. So you mentioned Marshall McLuhan, and you recently published a piece. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, first of all, I first uh, became acquainted with Marshall McLuhan when I was an undergraduate student in the 1960s, mid-1960s. Didn't know as much as I would later know. I didn't read McLuhan all that carefully, and I read him and sort of put him aside and said, oh, okay, interesting, and went on to other things. But then, uh, you know, about seven or eight years later, when I was uh, starting to study for my PhD, I really sat down and carefully read McLuhan, and I saw that he really had an enormous understanding, a very deep understanding uh, about the media of our time. 
for example, one of the points he made about television is when you see an image and you hear a person talking, the natural instinct is you want to reach out and touch that person. But you can't if it's a television screen. And so everyone who watches television, to some extent, is frustrated uh, in, in a visceral sense. And McLuhan tied that to the sexual revolution. He said, it's no coincidence that the sexual revolution happened in the 1960s. Uh, and, and, you know, I could talk all day about McLuhan's various concepts. But apropos of my work on my doctoral dissertation, one day I went in to see my advisor, Neil Postman, at New York University. I started work on my dissertation, so I had gone up to his office to talk to him about whatever I had just written in my dissertation. And I see Neil, he's sitting behind his desk. He has like, uh, he's holding his hand, you know, uh, chin in one hand. He has like a cigarette dangling out of his mouth and the other hand. He says, ah, oh, Paul, could you take a look at this? And he gives me a manuscript. And I look down at the manuscript and much to my amazement, I, the, it's titled uh, Laws of the Media. And the author is H. Marshall McLuhan. Now, actually, McLuhan's full name was Herbert Marshall McLuhan, and he, he liked to sign his manuscripts H. Marshall McLuhan, even though he was known by Marshall McLuhan. So I said, hey, this is by Marshall McLuhan, isn't it? And Neil Postman said, yeah, it is. Look, could you do me a favor, read it and see if it makes any sense to you. I, I'm not quite getting it. So I read it, and I guess it was a good day for me. And you know, it made perfect sense to me. It, it was presenting a new way of understanding, putting together media. It, McLuhan called it the tetrad, uh, that, that every technology has four kinds of impacts. So for example, let's pick radio. It, it amplifies sound, hearing things. It, that's the first thing. The second is it obsolesces something that already exists. So radio tends to obsolesce print that you people listen to the news on radio, do not read newspapers as often. Uh, a third is part of what the new technology is doing, it's retrieving something which previously was important. Well, before there was print, before there was writing, there was the spoken word, there was the ear, that's the way all people originally communicate. And finally, the, uh, the fourth aspect of the Tetrad is when the new technology is push, pushed to its limit, it flips into something related to it, but also something that harkens back to the past. So radio and push to its limit flips into and becomes television, which retrieves the visual image, still has sound, and uh, again, appeals to the eye in the same way that print did, no longer you know, to the ear. So McLuhan had lots of great examples of the Tetrad in this article. And what I just said to you, I explained to Postman. And Neil Postman looked at me and said, you know, puffed on a cigarette and said, okay, uh, Paul, would you write a preface uh, for this little article? I, I want to publish it in my journal, etc." That was the journal of the Society for General Semantics. So I said, you want me to write a preface to McLuhan's article? And I said, sure, and you know, let me see what it looks like. So I went home. This was uh, in the late 1970s. There was no email back then. But I wrote the preface, typed it up. The very next day, I'm in Postman's office. I give him the uh, little preface that I wrote. He looks it over. 
to the, oh, I, I, you know, I, okay, I see what you're saying. Let me send it up to Marshall McLuhan, and if he likes it, I'll publish this as a preface before his article. And so at that moment, I said, sure. But then after I left, I began thinking, hey, what's going to happen? McLuhan's going to get this preface written by this young, upstart, arrogant student. And, you know, I'm pretty arrogant in general, and I was arrogant back then. But, uh, you know, even I was thinking, I, you know, this is my, could be the end of my career. Anyway, to make a long story short, McLuhan liked the preface. He uh, invited me to have lunch with him next time he was in New York. And um, for the next three years, unfortunately, he died a few years later. I went up to Toronto, you know, a few times. He came down to New York. We talked extensively. I have an extensive correspondence with him. And I have to say that was, you know, I've known a lot of seminal thinkers, you know, in my time. You know, I met Karl Popper, the British philosopher. Uh, you know, I've been in touch with Noam Chomsky, Carl Sagan, but Marshall McLuhan was in a class by himself. And those three years that I was able to really get to know McLuhan still served me in good stead, still are a resource, a foundation for my thinking, even now, all these years later. Would you say he's a, a mentor then? Yeah, I mean, and you know, I, I just love the way he thinks uh, and the way that he means. So again, to get back to my music, M McLuhan uh, saw my writing and I didn't write and don't write in the way that McLuhan wrote. McLuhan wrote like in a very aphoristic, almost poetic way. I write in a much more conventional, you know, traditional scholarly way. So one day when I was up in Toronto, McLuhan looks at me and says, yeah, I, you know, I've been wondering how it is that a logic boy like you, he's saying to me, can understand so much of my work, and I figured it out. It's because you're also a musician, and it, it shows that that part of your brain, the right side of your brain, is very strong. Again, that's the acoustic side of the brain, McLuhan thought. And, and I just even loved hearing that, not only because he was saying it about me, but his, his understanding, his way of understanding of the world was so different so unconventional. You know, we'd be walking down the street near his home in Toronto, and a car would drive by. And McLuhan would turn to me and say, you know, the automobile retrieved the knight in shining armor. And at first I'd say, what? What are you talking about? But then I realized what he was talking about. And as you think about someone sitting in a car driving this big, shiny automobile, in a way, it's like it, back then, the 20th century equivalent of the knight in shining armor. And it, he just had this incredible mind that jumped through time, jumped through space, and uh, came up with amazing connections. Have there been other teachers that have been important to you? Well, I mentioned Neil Postman. So here's an interesting uh, situation. On the one hand, I disagreed with just about everything Postman wrote and said about technology, because he was an implacable critic of technology for most of his life. For example, he hated computers. He thought computers were just another version of television and a waste of time. And I disagree with that completely. But on the other hand, what I learned from Neil Postman was how to teach and just being in Postman's class, and that, that was over three years in his PhD program, 
Neil Postman had such a love of teaching. It, it was infectious. And I, I think that um, a lot of what I bring to a classroom or teaching online comes from Postman. He had a great sense of humor. He knew when to throw in a joke. He was very humble. He didn't mind if people disagreed with him. You know, there are some professors, some teachers who get rankled. They don't like it if a student asks them a tough question because then they have to sort of think about how they're going to answer it. Did they, you know, have enough research that they can be well-versed in the topic? Uh, and Postman felt, and I feel, that actually a question like that is not something to be annoyed about. It's something to welcome because it's an opportunity for further dialogue and further development. So nothing makes me happy in a classroom or through Zoom when a student asks me a tough question or any question. Because questions are, are not irritations, they're opportunities. And although Postman didn't say that point blank, his teaching style exemplified that. He, he loved questions and he loved dialogue. And, you know, if we're talking about mentors, I would say Isaac Asimov, again, to get back to him as a science fiction writer, I did meet him once or twice. And again, we don't write about similar things. He wrote about galactic empires and robots. You know, I have not written that much at all about robots and not at all about galactic empires. But also Asimov had a joy in the written word, a joy in writing science fiction. In, in taking an idea and making it real. And I've always found that very, very inspiring. And I think I read that somewhere that uh, before he died, he had written over 500 books or contributed to more than 500 books. That's a pretty good life as a writer. And, um, you know, anytime someone says to me, wow, you write, you, you've already written so much. Why don't you take it easy? I always think about Isaac Asimov. I'm never going to take it easy. I'm going to keep on writing for as long as I can. And we should also say that, you know, you've had, you've been an online education pioneer, and that's really important now, I mean. Well, so back in the 1980s, there was an organization called the Western Behavioral Sciences Institute, WBSI. And one day I was at a conference in Philadelphia, and a guy came up to me and said, hey, I heard your, you know, talk, uh, an hour or so ago, how would you like to teach a course for our Western Behavioral Sciences Institute? And I said, sure. Uh, and he said, we're in La Jolla, California. I said, I don't know if I can get out to La Jolla for, you know, to teach a whole course. He said, no, you just have to come out to La Jolla to meet the students, and then you're going to teach the course totally through computers. So this was like in the early 1980s. So I went out there, taught a course or two, and I realized this is a great way of learning. And so um, I came up with the idea for connected education, connected. And I was, Tina and I were already married. We created this company and we started offering courses. And of course, things were very different back then. They were offered totally online. There were no videos. You know, there might have been very primitive photographs and no real audio to speak of. This was before even MP3s. Uh, and, but the the program really went very well. At its height, we had students from more than uh, 20 countries across the world, more than 45 states around the US. I'm still in touch with many of those students. We've almost become friends. And so 
I've been in online education, though, not actively doing it since the 1980s. So when this whole COVID pandemic broke, and I, you know, I'll never forget uh, the day in March, I'm right in the middle of teaching a class in person, and Fordham announces we're shutting down. And within two days, you have to have your course online. And a lot of faculty are going crazy. What do you mean? How can I teach online? And I, I sent out a note to my colleagues. And I tried to give them some basics. Because even though we now have Zoom for live communication, and you can do videos, and you, know, you have email, and you have all these other possible ways of teaching online, the, the basics of online education have remained the same. And that's, you have to stay in touch with the students. You don't disappear on them. Students have to feel there's someone listening to them, responding to them. And um, there are enormous advantages, even outside of the COVID pandemic, that online education brings. For example, it doesn't matter where the students are. So again, you're in Paris right now. I'm a little north of New York. We could be right across the street from each other. The online connection does away with distance. And if you add in an asynchronous element, meaning, okay, I'm teaching an online course, some of it is going to be live through Zoom, but I'm going to record that, that Zoom lecture. And if you're in Paris, which is not that far away from New York, but let's say you're in Beijing, you know, or Shanghai, and you know, you want to take this course, and you just can't get on there live. It's like four o'clock in the morning for you. No problem, because you can see the lecture and listen to it asynchronously, and people can communicate that way. So I think online education is a profoundly liberating mode of education. There is something exciting about being in a class in person, but there's also something exciting about teaching people all around the world at the same time. And uh, so I found that to be an, an extremely valuable wellspring of orientation in terms of adjusting to what the pandemic has brought to higher education. I mean, I know that already there were a lot of apprehension about different technologies because it uh, empowers students or empowers kind of different ways of learning that's not based in the physical space. And, and you know, so, you know, what do you feel are the implications down the line for institutions who are so invested in the prestige of their establishments? Yeah, well, a couple of things. First of all, it, it apparently is the case that if we're talking about very young kids, five, six years old, uh, they do need the in-person classroom because that's part of their socialization process, you know, how to interact with their peers and, you know, their teachers and so on. But everybody else, uh, although they might like the in-person classroom, they don't really need uh, the in-person classroom. And, you know, so if you think about something like a place like Fordham University, I'm a professor at Fordham University. So whatever prestige or not I bring to Fordham University by being a professor, that's the case whether I go into their in-person campus on the Rose Hill campus in the Bronx or the Lincoln Center campus in Manhattan, that still pertains. I'm still Professor Paul Levinson of Fordham University when I'm teaching a class totally online. And you know, I think that pertains to other universities as well. 
you know, Harvard University is doing all their courses online this fall, and the students who take their courses are still going to be studying with those Harvard professors. And yeah, they're, they're going to miss something. You know, Cambridge, Massachusetts here in the United States, it's a really nice place to be, a nice place to live. But what they won't be missing is the information and intelligence and sensitivities and perspectives of the professors. So I think that universities that have to go online for a while are going to make the transformation and be successful. And, and I would advise universities, try very hard not to be so rigid that you can't offer a viable online option for professors and students who want that option. You know, I have to say, I mean, I, I, shortly after all the universities closed down, uh, a professor not at Fordham University, who I won't name, but he's like part of an online group, he literally said to this group, I would rather cut my arm off than teach online. And I didn't even answer him. I mean, because this guy is like so far gone. I don't know what he was thinking, what his problem was. But I, that way of thinking, it's not helpful. And I think it misses the essential point that, again, just like you and I are now having this conversation, professors can have conversations with groups of students and they can be extremely effective online. And before we go, I'm speaking about venturing into new mediums. And one of those is podcasting. We're doing one now. Um, you have a podcast. What attracted you to that? And what do you think about the future of podcasting as an expressive medium, as a way of conveying information and bringing people together? Well, this actually relates to Wikipedia and the difference between Wikipedia and the Encyclopedia Britannica. To, the Encyclopedia Britannica gets its articles by inviting uh, people to write articles, and then the staff goes over those articles very carefully and decides whether to publish them or not. On Wikipedia, anybody can write and put up an article. Now, I've been on radio many, many times. I've been on television many, many times. And one of the things that I know is the only way I get on those shows, just like this particular podcast right now, this particular interview, is if somebody invites me, which I love. I find it's very gratifying. I'm very flattered. You know, thanks for inviting me. But what do I do if I have an idea and I want to talk about something? And, uh, you know, nobody's invited me to talk about that. That was why I started Light On, Light Through, my podcast, way back in 2006. And because it's my podcast, I talk about anything I want to talk about, whenever I want to talk. Sometimes it's music, sometimes it's science fiction, sometimes it's politics. Since 2006, there have been years when all I've done are maybe three or four podcasts. But unsurprisingly, uh, beginning actually this past July 4th, I said, you know what, I'm going to really get back and do light on light through episodes really whenever I feel like talking. So my most recent episode is a, an anthropologist by the name of Wade Davis published an article in Rolling Stone in which he said, in effect, it doesn't matter if Joe Biden is elected president in the upcoming election in America. America is so far gone. It's unraveled so badly under Donald Trump, that it doesn't matter who succeeds Donald Trump, America has had its time. 
And I read that article. I thought it was a really great article in many ways, but I really disagreed with that last point. So I wrote a blog post. I also have a blog called Infinite Regress. Uh, and I decided to do a podcast episode in which it's just a 10-minute podcast in which I explain why I disagree with Wade Davis on that point. That, yes, America is in very bad shape now. America is has fascism bursting out all over. You know, race relations have, are, are really in, uh, in, in many cases, a dire condition. Uh, police are killing African-American men uh, without cause, innocent people being killed. And we, we have these, and, and the atrocious response to the coronavirus here in the United States, all that is true. But a lot of that can be reversed. And the point I made in this podcast is, if you think about when Franklin Delano Roosevelt became president in 1930, he was elected in 1932, he became president in 1933. This was during the Great Depression. And he, but he had a Democratic Congress and a Democratic Senate, and he was able to turn things around. And I think that if Americans like me vote for Joe Biden and we put Democrats in charge and control of the Senate, the Democrats are already in control of the House of Representatives, I think we can turn these, this dire situation around and make America a greater country than it ever was in the past. So I had that thought. No radio station said, hey, come on and talk about it. So I just did my podcast and put it out. And it has like hundreds and hundreds of views and, and listens. And so that's why I did uh, the Light on Light Group podcast. If you could focus on one thing, and I know there's so many, so it's, it is hard to focus. Well, it, it's not COVID-19 because maybe not the United States as much as it could be, but even here in the United States and certainly the world is already mobilized and trying to develop a vaccine and prophylactic medications as quickly as possible. So we're always going to be subject to epidemics and pandemics, but I, I think that most sane people are ready to do something about that. And if I had to pick one thing, uh, I, would, I have to say I have two solutions to that one problem. The one thing would be climate change because not enough people, I think, are yet paying attention to it. And there's no vaccine that can make us secure from climate change. So we need a lot more focus on that. But the second part of that, and I don't know anyone else who made this point, is getting off this planet altogether so that Earth is not our only option. And you know, one of the good things about the 1960s due to the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union is that, you know, human beings got off this planet and walked on the moon. That was in 1969. Since then, no human being has ever walked on any place off this earth. I mean, the space station is off the earth, but not on the moon, not on Mars. And so part of saving our planet is not all of us being on this planet. I think that human beings naturally have an affinity for the universe. In fact, I, I co-edited and came up with an idea for an anthology called uh, 
touching the face of the cosmos on the intersection of space travel and religion. It's almost a religious uh, question. What are we doing here in this universe? What's the ultimate meaning of our existence? We're never going to be able to answer that question just from being down here on Earth. And we're never even going to be able to totally take care of climate change until we understand the Earth by being off the Earth and looking back at it. And I think we as a species have a natural home in the universe beyond our planet. And I, I'd like to see more focus on that happening. Oh, well, that's a very considered and precise response. I haven't received that uh, response yet. <laughs> and so I, I just want to thank you for was all you've given us to think about, for your insi sharing your insights into the possibilities and the future of education, as well as your own music and science fiction and approach to writing and research and so it's a great panoply of ideas you've shared and so i want to invite creative responses from our students and i want to thank you paul levinson for adding your voice to the creative process well thank you for inviting me and i enjoyed our conversation immensely The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Mikszewski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Falk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Claire Goudreau. Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Welcome Up was composed and performed by Paul Levinson. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, and if you would like to get involved in our exhibits, podcasts, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info.